Jeremiah 13, and if you've had a chance to look at it briefly ahead of time, what is happening in this chapter? Okay, what's happening? What is happening in this chapter? Oh, strange things. Uh huh. And then later dig it up, and that was an example of Judah. Good. All right. <clears throat> so we have an action in which uh, Jeremiah is told by the Lord to take a waste band <clears throat> and to put it on and then to bury it. <clears throat> now, John Calvin says about this action <clears throat> no doubt a vision is here narrated, and not a real transaction. Ben, what do you think about Calvin's comment there? Uh, You mean he didn't do this in real life? That's what he means, not a real transaction. The word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord said to me, so... God must be speaking to him. In a vision? And in verse 6, it says many days later. So So you're arguing that Calvin's wrong. Unless there's a a place where it says that I was in a dream and such and such happened, right? Or I woke up from the dream. But it's... Referring to physical time and places and and uh, instances where the Lord is speaking. Okay, uh, I don't want to set husband against wife, but Maki, what do you think about your husband's comment there? Um, I agree with him. You agree with him. Well said. <laughs> there won't be any tension on the way home. <laughs> uh, uh, does anyone want to defend Calvin here? That's a great reputation to defend if he can be defended. Let's look at what Ben said. Did you notice how Ben very perceptively said there's nothing here in the text about I was in a dream or the Lord showed me in a vision? And Ben is absolutely right. That's not here. And when that does occur, we do have that language. For instance, when Daniel sees his visions in his book, it says that he was he sees a vision. When uh, in the New Testament, they say they're in the spirit. Apostle John was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he saw the great visions of the book of Revelation. So that being absent, we wonder, how does Calvin say this is a vision? He does. So why does he say it? Art, you were ready to say something. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you don't tell us here why Calvin thought that you just gave the book. <laughs> <laughs> he really doesn't tell us himself I've given you the the meat of uh, of his conclusion uh, so now we're left to wonder uh, what is it that Calvin thinks 
makes this a vision and not a real historic transaction or a real transaction, as he says. Go ahead, Art. You still have the floor. Well, <laughs> uh, just a thought that uh, I, I, by the way, I do agree with Ben. We all agree with Ben. You know, ben has come to the head of the class on this point with a number of observations about this text. But go ahead. The wording that actually happened. But if the wording had been thought that this was a vision or something, the conclusion we would draw from the passage would be the same because he's. Uh, he wants, he's drawing an analogy here. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that we would do it if it weren't, we would draw the same conclusion if it weren't concrete, but I'll try to make my case for that later on. Right now, let's, uh, let's try to fathom what is it that causes Calvin to say it's a vision and not that Jeremiah actually did this. I'll come back to you, Kay. When I asked you about what was going on in this chapter, you said strange. some strange things. I think that's what Calvin thinks. I think he believes it's a rather strange and somewhat bizarre uh, behavior if, in fact, it was actually performed uh, in the flesh. <clears throat> so... He dismisses it and attributes it to a vision. In other words, Jeremiah projects himself into this ethereal visionary dimension and he uh, sees himself go through these actions without actually feeling this or participating in it historically. Well, uh, we are uh, agreeing with Ben that this is a real Act. It is a real historical act, but it is also a real something act. Well, that's what I'm after in my blank there on your outline. What kind of an action is this? It's a prophetic. It's prophetic. That is true. But it's not a spoken prophetic act, is it? So what would you say, Marge? What kind of act is it? Anybody want to sit? Art? An object lesson. It's an object lesson? Okay, you get the idea. Art, what were you going to say? I don't think this is what you're looking for, but it's an obedient act. It is obedient, that is true. God told him to do it, he did it. Go ahead, Kay. Symbolic. That's right, that's the word we want. It is a symbolic act. And it is not the only symbolic act in the career of the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Ben mentioned that this was something that actually took place. In other words, it occurred in Jeremiah's personal experience. And I want to underscore the fact that this symbolic act is part of a narrative paradigm. In other words, it's part of the story or the biography of Jeremiah's career. That's one of the reasons it's recorded here. It's recorded here because God actually instructed him to do something that was symbolic, something that would be visible to those who saw it, and many people did see this. All right, so that is a real symbolic act, and it is not the only one 
in Jeremiah's narrative biography. In chapter 19, the Lord comes to Jeremiah and tells him to go to a potter's shop and to buy a clay jar or a clay vessel. Do you remember what God then says for Jeremiah to do with that clay jar? You don't need to look at the chapter. I was just wondering if you recall to break it. Correct. And he's to go out, in fact, in public view in the valley of Hinnom and to smash it. So here is another action, which is an actual physical visible event, which is symbolic of God breaking the power of Judah. You're going to break Judah as Jeremiah breaks the clay jar under the rod of Nebuchadnezzar. So there is another symbolic act which is visible. People saw him break the jar. The, the shopkeeper saw him purchase the jar. And there were people that followed him as he went out to the valley of Hinnom to smash it. Now, the third symbolic act is in chapter 27 to 28. And in chapter 27, the Lord commands Jeremiah to place a yoke upon his neck and to wear that yoke marching or walking around Jerusalem. Now, this symbolic act is emblematic of, well, what do you think uh, is symbolically displayed or emblematically prophesied in Jeremiah wearing this yoke? Go ahead, Ben. They're going to be slaves. They're going to be having the yoke of some other nation. What nation? Babylon. Babylon. Who's king? Uh, is, there, is it Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar. So that yoke is emblematic of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is going to take the children of Judah into bondage. How long? Maki, how long are they going to be in captivity? Forty years. How many? How many? Forty. Forty? Uh, not quite. A little more than that. Anyone? 70 years captivity. They're going to be there 70. Now, it's a round figure, and when we get to that part of Jeremiah, we'll talk about that. All right, so they're going to be placed under the yoke of Babylonian captivity. They're going to be reduced to servants or to slaves. And Jeremiah is portraying this. This is a physical, visual representation of what is coming with the uh, yoke of Babylonian oppression. Now, in the 28th chapter, a false prophet takes that yoke off of Jeremiah's neck. And that false prophet is despising the symbolism of that act. He is suggesting that Babylon is not going to place Judah under the yoke and is not going to take Judah into captivity. In other words, this symbolic act in chapter 27 and 28 becomes a kind of dichotomy or differentiation between a true and false prophet. 
So it has a larger overtone, has a larger theological significance than just simply displaying the coming of the Babylonian conqueror. All right, that's the third symbolic act, or as one writer suggests, and Ben alluded to this a little bit ago, this is prophetic theater. It's like uh, Jeremiah is on a stage and he is acting out uh, God's future uh, uh, disposition of the nation of Judah. All right, that brings us to the fourth symbolic act in Jeremiah's career, chapter 32. The Lord instructs him to buy a field in Anathoth. Now, what's the significance of Anathoth for Jeremiah? Robert, do you remember? It's his birthplace. It's his birthplace. It is his hometown. Now, the Lord tells Jeremiah to purchase this field in Anathoth, even though Jeremiah knows that the children of Judah are going to be carried away captive, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, city's going to be, the nation is going to be taken into captivity and conquered. He tells him to buy that field of Anathoth, and Jeremiah does. What's the significance, then, of this symbolic act? Purchase a field in your hometown, even though this nation is going to be destroyed. Go ahead, Ben. It's it's looking forward to coming back and actually having a plot of land you come back to. Very good. The Lord is indicating by this symbolic act that there will be a return from captivity. And so here is a parcel of land that will be ready to be reoccupied when the captives of Judah return. So Jeremiah is prophetically displaying the future grace of God in bringing a remnant out of Babylon. Now, the 43rd chapter of Jeremiah, which is the fifth symbolic act, uh, is a little bit stranger than what Kay thought this one in 19 was. In that chapter, the Lord commands Jeremiah to take some stones and to hide them at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Egypt. All right, now, we... We know that Jeremiah wasn't carried off to Babylon. He was more or less kidnapped by a group of Jews in Judah who took him down to Egypt, probably by force. So this incident, this symbolic act comes out of Jeremiah's biography or narrative career when he is carried off into Egypt. So that's how he gets there, and he is actually there. He is really there in Egypt. And so he does what the Lord commands him to do. He takes these stones, and he buries them uh, <coughs> at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Egypt. And if you look at that chapter later, you'll find the name of the city, and you can look it up on uh, one of your maps in the back of your Bible, because it generally is speaking is, is uh, on one of the maps of Egypt. It's in the Delta region. And uh, the Lord then tells him that... Nebuchadnezzar is going to invade Egypt, and those stones are going to be destroyed or dislodged from the palace of Pharaoh, and that palace is going to be destroyed. Well, we have a fragment of one of Nebuchadnezzar's chronicles 
which indicates that he did in fact invade Egypt long after he had conquered Judah and Palestine in 568 or 67. He, he campaigned into Egypt in order to loot it. He didn't campaign in order to conquer or settle it. He campaigned to loot it. And consequently, this symbolic act is prophetic of that event. Now, that leaves one more, and it's in Jeremiah 16. And since that's not too far in advance of where we are, chapter 13, let's turn to that one just for a minute. And you'll notice I have a question mark beside that one. The five that we've listed up to this point seem to be obvious, and there's not too much argument about the fact that they are real symbolic acts on Jeremiah's part. There is a controversy about this one. This one in chapter 16 is argued, but let's look at uh, a couple of the verses here to see what uh, God says. Notice in verse 2. What does he say to Jeremiah? Maki, what does he say to him? Uh, Do not take a wife. All right, now hold on to that thought. Let's skip down to verse 5. What does he say there, Maki? Uh, Do not go into the house of uh, Mordecai. Yeah, in other words, don't go to what? Don't go to a funeral. All right, notice what he's told to do. Do not take a wife and do not go to a funeral. Chapter 16 contains two commands in which Jeremiah is to withhold himself from marriage and he is to withhold himself from a funeral. Leaving aside the question of whether this is a symbolic act or this is a double symbolic act, leaving that aside for a moment, why is God doing this? Is there something wrong with marriage? Kay is smiling and she's saying, no, not for all my years. And he tells us why. Pardon? He tells us why. I'm, I, I'm sorry. In verse 5, he says what? God says why he moves. Okay. Because I have withdrawn my blessing, my love, and my pity from this people. All right. Uh, I'll say that's obvious, uh, but why don't marry and why don't go to a funeral? After. Go ahead, Kay. I hear what he said. He, he said God says in verse 5 because he's withdrawn his is uh, consolation or mercy from the land. Getting married and having children shows there's going to be a, a future. And God was saying there wasn't going to be a future. But he already told him to purchase a, a plot of ground in Anathoth, right? Or at least he's going to do that. Yeah, but that was for later. That, that's for later. There's no future for Jeremiah right now. Well, no, I think it was supposed to represent the future right now of... Uh, Jerusalem, because those people are all going to die. Um, you're, get, you're getting a little closer with your last statement there. <laughs> at least, hold on, Ben. At least, at least as I see it, was there somebody else over here that was waving at Robert? It sounds to me like he's got some symbolism going on here. He's not saying that you 
never going to get married or never going to do this. It's just not right now, not in this land, because I don't want you partaking of the symbolism that's going on. Mm, okay, that's interesting. Uh, what? How does a funeral then fit into that pattern? Uh, well, in the previous paragraph, there is... Uh, there's a bunch of diseases that's going to come down. <laughs> so uh, stay away from the funeral parlor because it's not hygienic. <laughs> uh, let's let's get go ahead, Scott. It's a symbolic act He's, because the Lord <clears throat> no longer has His love upon the land, and marriage represents a feast of love, and He no longer, He does not have pity upon the land, and a funeral represents at least some form of pity of you know whether it be. Those who lost their loved one, or the one who has died, showing some perhaps some sort of grief for that that one who's died. Okay, well, you're you're kind of tagging along what Robert is saying, and, and you're putting more flesh on the skeleton. Go ahead, Ben. So, uh, God talks in other places in Scripture about generations that are born and generations that God allows to grow, people that he allows to grow on the earth that are vessels of his wrath. So he propagates humankind in order to bestow his wrath on them. Uh, no, I, I don't think it's that nefarious. Let's, let's think about these two things. <clears throat> Particularly, let's think about <clears throat> the funeral. Okay, You have a close friend that dies. Uh, what's your natural instinct when there's a service? You're going to attend uh, because it's a proper re- uh, recognition of respect. All right. <clears throat> so Jeremiah is forbidden for doing that. He's forbidden from doing the very natural thing of attending a service of mourning. Do not go, says the Lord. All right. Now let's go back to marriage. <clears throat> Okay, uh, marriage is an ordinary blessing of God for the joy as well as the propagation of children, <clears throat> and it it brings delight into couples' lives. Jeremiah is forbidden <clears throat> to experience that. He's forbidden to enter into it. You see what God is doing. God is turning the natural joys and the natural griefs upside down. He's upsetting the order of what is an appropriate emotional need or response. And he's doing it, in Jeremiah's case, in order to, if this is a symbolic act, Indicate how he is going to turn the natural order upside down in the destruction of Jerusalem. They are going to end marriage because they are going to die. And there's going to be no one to observe the rites of their funerals because their corpses are going to be exposed to the carrion eaters. This suggestion then is a kind of upside down. The world's going to go topsy-turvy. And Jeremiah, you are a prophetic symbol of it by the fact that you are not going to marry and experience that natural joy. And you are not going to go to funerals to mourn and experience that natural emotion of grief. You are forbidden 
because you are a display of the fact that these natural elements, these natural observations are going to be turned upside down and temporarily eliminated. All right, now, now whether you accept my explanation or not, uh, we come to the question of whether this is truly a symbolic act. When you compare it with the other five, you notice that Jeremiah actually does something visible. There's something tangible in the waistband. There's something tangible in the jar, the clay jar. Something tangible about having a yoke upon your neck and walking around the streets of Jerusalem with it. Something tangible about a piece of property which you have purchased. You had to actually put money down on it. You actually had to have a transaction that recorded it. Something tangible about taking these stones and hiding them in the brick and mortar of Pharaoh's palace. There's nothing really tangible here. It's the intangible of not doing something, of not having a tangible bride, of not going to the tangible funeral parlor or a funeral service. That's one of the reasons there's a question mark about this one. It doesn't have that same visibility to it. Now, I grant you that seeing Jeremiah walk around Jerusalem without a wife, you would say, well, you know, why doesn't he have a wife? But of course, did you know, did everybody in Jerusalem know Jeremiah? Sooner or later they did. But is, is this status then indicative? Or did everyone know that he didn't go to a particular funeral? You see, uh, this, this public aspect of it is something else that is questionable. So we'll leave the question mark beside it. There are some very fine scholars who think that chapter 16 is a symbolic act, and there are others who do not. So we'll leave that one in limbo until we can solve it from some other data or some other more perceptive thinking, or we'll sit down with Jeremiah and talk to him about it in heaven, and then then we'll have the right answer. All right. These symbolic acts are a crucial part of his life, crucial part of his narrative story. This chapter has a threefold structure. We have the act as it's described in verses 1 to 7, and then we have the meaning of the act described in verses 8 to 14. Then the poetic portion, and that's the narrative portion of this chapter, the poetic portion of this chapter, which begins in chapter in verse 15, I'm sorry, and last of verse 27, is the consequent plea and declaration the plea of the prophet and the declaration of God, which is a consequence of the demonstrable symbolic act itself. All right, any questions to this point? All right, let's look at verse 1, and let's begin to pick apart the specifics of this action, beginning with the waistband. Now, I'm reading from the New American Standard, so my translation says waistband, and I want you to understand that this is a thigh-to-waist garment. It is not a belt. It is longer than that. It might be what we would call shorts, but cut-off shorts above the knee. All right, now, it's linen. It is a linen waistband. Why is that significant? All right, let's turn back to Leviticus 16.4 because that's the answer to that question. 
He is told to put on a linen waistband, not cotton, not any uh, uh, ordinary fabric, but to put on a linen waistband. And in Leviticus 16, verse 4, what do we note? That the priest, high priest Aaron, is to put on a holy linen tunic and linen undergarments shall be next to his body. This is the fabric of the priesthood. Why then is this significant in Jeremiah chapter 13? Why is it significant that Jeremiah is told to put on the fabric of the priesthood? Well, if it's holy. It is holy, that is true. Is he holy? No, but the people were called to be holy. They're called to be holy, so is this a symbol of them being called to be holy? Yeah. They can't see it, can they? Or can they? Can they, the, the tunic, can they, can they see this waistband? Yeah. Okay, I'll hold on to that. Mary Lou, you, what were you going to say? I'll come back to you. Well, uh, <coughs> it's uh, easily absorbing water. And what about this priesthood association? Here I've said that this linen is somehow identified with the priestly garment or the priestly fabric. What does that What does that have to do with Jeremiah? Well, he's from a Yes, I was going to give her another chance to, to try for that. So, so you, know, you go ahead and say it, and, and, and I'll let her see if that's what she was going to say. It's from a priest. He's from the priestly town. Yes, he's from the priestly line. Remember that he is a son of a priest in Anathoth, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1, Hilkiah, his father. So the linen is emblematic of the fact that Jeremiah came from a family of priests. So it is appropriate. Now, uh, to, the, to the point that Loretta made, is this visible? Take a look at verse 11. Loretta, I'm, I'm still going to pick on you for this one. Verse 11 of chapter 13. I'm sorry, you were back in Leviticus 16, so yes, I'm... I'm done with Leviticus. You're asking me, is it visible? Is it visible to the people? Why? Well, it might be under something. Yes, it's an undergarment, isn't it? It's worn where? Close to his skin. That's right. It is not a girdle. In other words, it is not a garment that was pulled over another garment. It is right next to his skin. That's the reason a belt is a little bit misleading in the translation. This is a much longer garment. It's a much longer undergarment than just a belt. All right. Now, he is told in the first verse not to put it in water. Maki, when do you do your laundry? When it's dirty. 
Monday? When you close the service. Okay. Uh, anybody still have Monday wash day any, anymore? <laughs> In this modern generation, it's whenever I get to it, right? <laughs> My mother always Monday was wash day. This was just as regular as clockwork. Uh, maybe that's an old East Coast tradition. I don't know. But at any rate... Uh, Jeremiah is not supposed to throw this thing in the wash, is he? Well, it's going to get pretty yucky. Yeah, it's going to get pretty yucky, isn't it, Cheryl? That's exactly right. And as a result of not washing it and it getting yucky, what's going to happen to it? It's going to become soiled, isn't it? It's going to be soiled and dirty. And yet he is forbidden to put it in water or to wash it. All right, now the second thing that he's told to do with it in verse 2. He's told to, I'm sorry, in, in verse, boy, I missed that one. Verse 5 is to, uh, no, it's in verse 4, to hide it, to hide it. But in verse 7, you understand what the Lord means by hiding it. Mary Lou, your head went up. <laughs> I'm not sure, uh, but I, because he's Work. a priestly person, um, what was I going to say? <laughs> okay, think, think of that word hiding, and now look at verse 7. And what is he doing in verse 7? Yes, and also... Totally worthless. Okay. Ah. <laughs> Maybe. Beginning of verse 7 says he went and dug it up. So he hid it by what? <coughs> Burying it. Very good. That's the word we want. He hid it. When God tells him to hide it, verse 7 is telling you, hide it by burying it. Burying it in the ground. Which, of course, is not going to do this dirty waistband any good either. Because not only is it going to be soiled, it's going to begin to decay and rot. Well, where is he supposed to hide it or bury it? Back to verse 4. All your versions probably have a note here. The original older translation is the Euphrates. Now, where, what is the Euphrates? Marge, what's the Euphrates? <coughs> It is a river. And where is it located, Art? Uh, runs through Babylon. It, it runs through Babylon, that is true. It's a part of what region? It's a, it's a, uh, it's a kind of a twin river. It goes along with what other river? Tigris. Tigris and Euphrates. They run, run through what region? The Fertile Crescent. The Fertile Crescent, okay, or the Mesopotamian Valley, okay, that whole region is called Mesopotamia. So Euphrates is in that region. How far away from Jerusalem is that? Back to you, Mark. It's a long way. That's right. It's a very long way. Ben, you had your hand up. Well, the Hebrew says Parath, or Okay, so Ben is noting what your modern versions have. You have a note there. 
The older reading is Euphrates, which is very far away. Okay? Your, your note, or your, if, if some of you put it, if some versions have actually put it in the text and not made it a note, uh, is para. Where is para? Okay. I'm not surprised that you don't know. It is not a village that is uh, mentioned except one place in the Bible, and it's in that note in Joshua 18.23. And the, the actual description of it there in the book of Joshua won't help you locate it. It is about three miles northeast of Anathoth. Jeremiah's, Robert, his hometown. All right. One of the reasons for accepting the variant reading here, para, which Ben pointed out, one of the reasons is that it is close at hand and would be more sensible for him to go to para, bury it, go back to para, dig it up. He could turn this around much more quickly than a perhaps two-week journey walking to the Euphrates and two weeks back or whatever it would take to turn it around. The Hebrew word is capable of being translated para, and therefore I think it's the more reasonable reading, simply because it's more proximate to Jeremiah's hmm, dimension of activity, a sphere of activity. So I'm going to agree with the more modern versions here and accept that reading of Paros because I think it is more in tune with the symbolic character of the act that is being described. Well, we've already talked about the result of this process, that is, of wearing it, not washing it, burying it or hiding it, digging it up again. And there are a number of words that we can use to describe this. It would have been dirty. It would have been soiled. It would have decayed. It would have rotted. And that is reflective of the process of ruin that is going to come upon Judah and Jerusalem. The nation is going to become dirty by reason of the disaster that's coming upon them. They're going to become rotted. That is a process of decay, and it's reflective of the moral decay, the spiritual decay that is present in this culture. And then the garment was buried, and that is emblematic of the process of Death. Yes, it's going to decay and rot. It's going to be soiled, just like this nation is soiled and dirty morally and spiritually. This nation is in a state of uh, decline, and this nation is going to be buried. This nation is going to go to the grave of death. All right, so the symbolic action is appropriate, specifically uh, 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 attuned and uh, and intended to demonstrate the condition and the consequence of that condition, which is present in Judah and Jerusalem. All right, any question about the details of the garment and the actions itself? Yes, go ahead, Mary. This might be kind of crazy, 
linen garment that's similar to like the priest's garment. You've got it buried like death, and then you've got it totally decayed. It's like there's the loss of any kind of salvation or resurrection in this picture. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to say that's uh, that's not crazy, uh, <laughs> but. Um, Notice that the linen is not so much symbolic of priesthood as it's appropriate to his background. And therefore, I'm not so certain we can suggest priestly line or priestly order or priestly prospect out of it as much as it would be a reminder of what his background was. And so it was appropriate to him. Now, your point about death and and no resurrection um, though conceivable, keep in mind that the exile is death and the return from exile is a resurrection from the dead. So uh, the fact that he buries it and raises it up may in fact be suggestive of, of uh, the end of the prospect of Judah's destruction, namely some type of, of uh, restoration, maybe. It was decayed. That is correct. It was decayed in its current status. So, you know, you, you, you can't resurrect a linen garment because it's decayed. But nonetheless, the fact that he takes it back again may be suggestive. So maybe it could be the status idea where the Israel, as it was known up to that point, was coming to an end. In other words, then it became the people of God throughout the world instead of the localized nation? Um, Not with this this vehicle, I don't think. Uh, Jeremiah does have a vision for the nations at the end of his book. There is an eschatology of the nations coming to salvation. Uh, But I don't think this, uh, this image, I think, is peculiar to Judah, peculiar to the kingdom of of, uh, Judah and Jerusalem. Thanks for pushing the envelope a little bit. That's that's uh, fun to think about. So in verse, how do you tie in verse 11? I want to come to that later. So if you'll hold off for a moment. Uh, any other questions about 1 to 7? All right. Now, you have a statement there from Gerhardus Voss, who calls this the incarnate vision. Why is Voss using that language about this symbolic act? Which verses is he referring to? He's referring to the event, to the act itself. All first seven verses. Were you here when we dismissed Calvin? Yeah. Okay. No. Voss no. Voss is not favoring Calvin. Yes, Voss thinks Calvin's wrong too. Just proves that Calvin's not right about everything, right? Okay. Go ahead, Dave. You take something that starts out pure and and it collects the dirt. Huh? And then it goes into the ground, which is you could say that it's like. Christ being perfect, coming and taking our sin and then dying. 
Um, I, I want to end up there, but I, I want you to think a little more carefully about what's happening here and why Voss calls it incarnate. Yes, let's think about the life of Jeremiah and why he calls this an incarnate vision. Now, what Voss means by vision here is not that it's visionary, but it is, in fact, a we get a vision of something here. Define incarnate again. Incarnate means in in the, what's carnal knowledge? In the flesh. In the flesh, okay? Wearing of the garment, the fact that the garment represents Israel or the people of God. How, how, let me go back to Ben. How does he know what to do, Ben? Jeremiah. He's how does Jeremiah know what to do? Told by God. Yes. Yeah, so what comes to him? The word. The word of God comes to him. Okay. The word of God comes to him, and then what does he do? He obeys. Follows he follows it out. He performs the. In the flesh. He performs in the flesh the. The act. The act. That's the word we want. All right. So, what do we have here? We have word and deed. We have the word of God, and then we have it embodied in the deed, in the act. That's what Voss is after. Boss is driving you to think about the word that God gives being embodied in an act, a symbolic act, but it is embodied there. Okay, so it's incarnate there. It's actually enfleshed. All right, let's follow this through. Okay, look at my outline, and you'll notice that I line up word. So the word comes from what person in this drama? Ben? God. God. Okay, so you put God on that line. The deed comes from what, Maki? The prophet. Okay, so we have God and the prophet. That means we have an interface between word and deed. We have an interface between fill in the blank. God and the prophet, exactly. That's the next blank. Which means that it is embodied or enacted. The word and the deed are joined in such a way as to be visible. Visible. You can see the word of God in the act of wearing the waistband, bearing it, digging it up, and so on and so forth. Okay? So we have an, an enacted symbol. We have the enacted word of God. We have the embodied word of God. Because the act, which is embodied, which is enacted, is in fact in the physical person of the prophet himself. Now, the interface means that the prophet blanks God. The prophet blanks God. 
What word do we want in the blank? Terry? Mm. Yeah, you're close. I want something better than that. When I say interface... I want to say that. Frank Frank is asking for a moment. Uh, ben, I'm going to interrupt you and give the floor to Frank. He hasn't said a word yet. Go ahead, Frank. Reveals. Reveals. Uh, okay, you're close. Embody is close. But think of it in, in, in terms of interface. Robert? Intercede work. Pardon? Would the word intercede work here? No. First thing you see in the morning when you get into the bathroom. Face in what? In the mirror. The interface is a mirror paradigm. In other words, the prophet mirrors God. The word of God commands the deed. The deed is embodied in the prophet, therefore the prophet becomes a mirror of God's word visible. Now, Ben, I want you to take that to the next step, next level. Well, yeah, so Christ mirrors God's word. Because he, because he is... He, he is incarnate. He is what? <coughs> In the beginning, he is the Word of God. He is the Word of God, and he comes in the he comes in the flesh. John one one. John one fourteen. So the embodiment of the Word of God in the Son of God, which is the fullness of the mirror of Jeremiah's embodiment of the Word of God in the act of God. Notice that the visibility is present. It is displayed and revealed in Jeremiah. When they see Jeremiah, they're seeing the very living word of God. When you see the Lord Jesus Christ, you're seeing the very living word of God. All right. Now, there's one final aspect of this. The word and deed become one. In, in the prophet Jeremiah. At the embodiment, at the enacted symbol, the word and the deed become one. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The word and the flesh become one. This is the reason Voss can use that phrase incarnate vision. It is not only prophetic, it is proleptic. It is not only prophetic, it is eschatological. It is not only prophetic, it is a mirror of what is going to happen when the very word of God ontological takes flesh and becomes a man. And the visibility of Christ will be a visibility of the word and deed of God for 30 plus years. The enacted, embodied, incarnate word of God that Jeremiah participates in as he himself is drawn into the drama of the relationship, the interface between word and deed. Word of God and deed enacted of God.
Can't you say that, I know the prophet is doing this willingly and is called by God in a special way, but can't you say that this is what God wants in general from his people, from man, is to embody his words, reflect his character anyway, right? And he has his Ten Commandments, he has all the ways that he wants us to live, and we would be mirrors of him if we were to do that. Very good, Ben. Thank you very much. Now, the, dis- the difference is that we don't want to destroy the uniqueness of this. All right. So but nonetheless, there is something here for us to be drawn into, for us to participate in. And that's in that very fame, same interface. We want to interface with the life of the word of God living Jesus Christ in order to be a demonstration of that life, a visible demonstration of the embodiment of that life. Without uh, pushing the uh, the uh, barrier here on uh, in- incarnation, you know we're not incarnations of God. <laughs> okay, now the last thing to observe, and then I'll give you a break. The last thing to observe is that the person and the act occurs somewhere, and the mirror of God and the act occurs in somewhere. In a dimension. No. In Jeremiah performs the act in time and space. The mirror, that is, the relationship between God and the act occurs in time and space. Notice once again that Jeremiah, in experiencing it in the temporal and spatial dimension, is projecting in this mirror what is going to happen with the Son of God, who will enter into time and space. In other words, Jeremiah is an anticipation of something that is going to be far more wonderfully intimate than merely a symbolic prophetic act. The mirror between Jesus of Nazareth and God is the mirror of an eternal union, an eternal oneness, so that God and man are united in this person, Jesus. They are mirrored in this person, Jesus of Nazareth, then eschatologically, forever, eternally. Remember your confession and your catechism. When Jesus takes a human nature into union with his divine nature, does he leave that human nature from that point on? Does he abandon it? He takes it to glory. In other words, that human nature is eternally joined to his divine nature. The mirror becomes permanent, everlasting, eternal, and fully eschatological. Jeremiah is drawn into the mystery of the incarnation here. He is himself participating in a mystery hidden from the ages. Does he understand it? I'm not sure he does, but remember what the apostle says, that the prophets tried to peer 
into the background of what they were experiencing and projecting. The fact that Jesus was thought to be Jeremiah is strongly suggestive that Jeremiah may have had some insight into the profundity of what he was himself displaying and revealing. I won't push it too far, but it's an intriguing thing to ponder. Why do we know so much about Jeremiah? We know more about him than any other writing prophet. Why? Why did they think Jesus was like Jeremiah? Why? What is this connection between this prophet and the Lord Jesus? Why? You see, we're driven to think more deeply about this life and about this book and about this symbolic act. Okay, well, you've been patient, but there is whatever you get back there. So take a break for a few minutes and we'll come back and rip through the rest of the chapter. Let me fill in the top of page two for you um, so that we can move on. The question about a twofold symbol involves verse 11, which Ben asked about earlier. So let me just comment on that. Number one there on that part of the outline is the waistband, and it is a symbol of the ruin the decay and death of Judah, the eschatological vector there would be, it was the final judgment for those that experienced it. In other words, they faced final death, judgment, etc. So uh, that's the reference to the waistband. But in verse 11, you will notice that the waistband is described as clinging to the waist, We already talked about that in terms of the fact that it was a undergarment close to the skin. But notice what God says about that. He says he made the household of Judah cling to him. So the clinging of Judah here is the second element of that symbol. And the clinging of Judah was this outward or external formal identification of the people of Judah as the people of God. In fact, they were a rather a reprobate bunch and, uh, and depraved in many ways. But the clinging here will be renewed. And so I want to just comment about the eschatological vector in terms of the clinging that Jeremiah prophesies in chapter 31. And that is the clinging to God by way of a new covenant, which will not be broken. So the projection here is the clinging which has led to death and destruction and decay, but it's going to be replaced by a clinging which God will not allow to decay. And he will He will write his uh, law on their inward parts, and they will know him as their Lord. Uh, <clears throat> that clinging will give them a new name. They will truly be my people, and that name will be written on their foreheads. In fact, the book of Revelation says they have their name written on their, they have God's name written on their foreheads, Revelation 22, verse 4. And this clinging will involve a new narrative story. Namely, it will involve the story of belonging to God's own eternal tale of life everlasting. 
this clinging will be permanent as this previous clinging was impermanent. Now, verses 12 to 14 bring in another image. And this image is forgotten in the discussion of the symbolic act of the waistband. Here, God talks to the children of Israel, saying every jug is to be filled with wine. So we have another, shall we say, uh, symbolic act, which involves wine jugs. And the people respond, well, do we not know very well that every jug is to be filled with wine? In other words, they're talking back to God. God says every jug is to be filled with wine, and they're saying in somewhat smart-mouthed response, well, of course, that's what you do with a wine jug. You fill it with wine. Now, verse 13 talks about the fact that God is going to fill them, and the reason he's telling them to fill the jugs with wine, he's going to fill them with drunkenness, that they may be dashed against one another. This is a, shall we say, enacted parable, or an enacted uh, demonstration of what the fruit of the filling of the wine jugs and actually imbibing in the filled up wine jugs. The people say, well, that's the purpose of filling up wine jugs, and we can drink it all down. We can guzzle it all up. God knows that. God knows that these people are drunk, drunkards. There's a great deal of drunkenness going on in Judah and Jerusalem. In chapter 25, he will describe that drunkenness. He will describe it as staggering, which, of course, we know happens with drunkenness, don't we? And he will describe it in chapter 25 as vomiting, and we know that's part of drunkenness. Those are the deleterious sides of excessive alcohol use, alcoholism, inebriation. God is saying, I'm going to make you drunk. I'm going to fill you with the wine you want to be filled with, only it's not going to be the wine that makes you stagger and vomit. It's going to be the wine of my wrath. It's going to be the wine of destruction. And we want to hold on to this wine motif for a moment and bring it back into this narrative at the end of this chapter because we want to account for what they used the wine for and how they got drunk in the use of it. All right, now in verse 14, God indicates he's going to dash them against each other, which is an interesting image very much like you would dash a wine jug against the stones or against the side of a wall. You would smash or dash the jug itself, so it's emblematic of the uh, symbolism of this uh, image of the wine jug that leads to God's uh, uh, wrath of judgment. Now, verse 15 is the beginning of Jeremiah's appeal his plea with them, and his declaration as God reveals it to them. Do not be haughty. What's the word haughty mean? My version says haughty. What's the word haughty mean? Terry, what's the word haughty mean? Aloof. Aloof can be. This obviously has a little moral twist to it. Okay, what's haughty? Proud. Proud, yes. Do not be proud. 
And pride arises from a depraved nature. And, of course, this nation is demonstrating its depravity because pride gives glory to fill in the blank. To self. To self. But notice in verse 16, what does Jeremiah say? Loretta, give glory to God, not to self. Do not be haughty, but give glory to God. And here, in this 16th verse, he talks about God bringing darkness, bringing a time in which feet stumble on dusky or darkened mountains, a time in which they will hope for light, but it becomes deep darkness and turns to gloom. This is an image which is reminiscent of what, Scott? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. All right. The day of the Lord. Very famous motif in Old Testament prophecy. I've given you some passages to look up at your leisure. Uh, You don't need to turn to them now. But Amos is one of the most graphic in describing the day of the Lord as a day of darkness. No light. A day of deep gloom. And Jeremiah is using that same motif. He doesn't call it the day of the Lord. It's interesting that he doesn't, but he uses the theme behind the day of the Lord. And where it occurs, it is an eschatological judgment. It is a judgment which brings finality. For Amos, it's the judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel in 722. For Zephaniah, it is also the southern kingdom of Judah as it is for Jeremiah. For Zephaniah is a contemporary of Jeremiah. He is a prophet in Jerusalem, though we don't know whether they knew one another. There is no indication in the scriptures whether there was any interaction between them. Now, in verse 17, you have a passage which is descriptive of the character and the biography of Jeremiah. How so? He is the weeping prophet. This is the first indication of his tears. It will occur frequently through the rest of the book, and it will occur in the book of Lamentations. But it is this verse which gives Jeremiah the moniker, the weeping prophet. Now, in this verse, he says his tears are flowing down because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. 586 B.C.? Five eighty six BC? Question. Yes. Pardon? My version says will be taken captive. Will be taken captive? Mistranslation. It's better to be just simply taken, has been taken captive. Because it raises the question of what's going on in verse eighteen. All right, let's take verse eighteen then and attempt to explain what he is saying in verse 17. The king and the queen mother. Crown has come down from your heads. What could he possibly be referring to? Who could he possibly be referring to? King and queen mother. Jesus. 
let's take a look at chapter 22. Verse 26. I shall hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. Who's he talking about? Go back to verse 24. Jehoiakim, mm-hmm. also known as Coniah, also called Shalom in this 22nd chapter. Notice verse 11. We talked about this way back last last January when we talked about the introduction to this book. The queen mother is named in Jeremiah 29.2. Her name's not given there, but she is named there as the queen mother. King Jehoiakim, I'm sorry, King Jeconiah or Jehoiakim and the queen mother had departed from Jerusalem, which takes us back to 2 Kings 24. So let's turn back to 2 Kings 24, verse 8. 2 Kings 24, verse 8. There in Jeremiah 29.2, we saw that Jeconiah or Jehoiakim is the son of Jehoiakim. And in 2 Kings 24.8, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned three months in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Nahushta. So there's the name of the queen mother. Now, what happened to Jehoiakim and his mother? Verse 12, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon Nebuchadnezzar, notice verse 11, he and his mother and his servants. So the queen mother goes out with the king to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. And finally, verse 15, so he, Nebuchadnezzar, led Jehoiakim into exile, also the king's mother and the king's wives and his officials, etc. Back to Jeremiah 13, verse 18. Now we know who the king and the queen mother are. The king is Jehoiakim, also known in the Bible as Coniah and Jeconiah and even Shalom. He has four names. The other three names are known only from the prophet Jeremiah and his mother. And they are led away by Nebuchadnezzar in what date? During what siege? Not the four siege. There are only three. There are only three. But since you brought them up, Robert, what's the first one? Oh, no. <laughs> Be careful what you answer. No good deed goes There you go. <laughs> Who did he take away the first time he besieged Jerusalem? 
Anyone? First time Nebuchadnezzar surrounded Jerusalem, who did he take away? Daniel. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What was the date? Okay, you're doing well. Terry? Not 586. That's the last one. We'll come to you with the last one. 605. First one, 605. All right. So the last one's 586. What does he do then, Robert? That's an easy one. I'll give you a softball. Yeah, that's when he takes away Jack and I. No. No. That's when he destroys the city. Okay, so it's all over in 586. So in between is another captivity. And who does he take away in his captivity between, besides the Jehoiakim and the queen mother, Nehushta? He takes away a prophet. He carries him off along with Jehoiakim. Ezekiel. All right, Robert. <laughs> we have these interlopers. <laughs> well, we're, well you, we welcome these interlopers. Yes, it, it takes uh, Jehoiakim and Ezekiel and the Queen Mother in what year, Robert? Now, didn't you? <laughs> Not 586. 586 is the last siege, the destruction of the city. 605 is the first siege. Daniel goes away with his three friends. Now, in between go Ezekiel, Jehoiakim, and the Queen Mother. What year? Part? 593. 597. Very good. His name's not Art, is it? Okay. All right. Now, that explains what is happening in verse 17 when he says, the flock of the Lord has been taken captive and the future is not appropriate for the translation there. Because what Jeremiah is doing, he is observing what has taken place in that second siege and describing the surrender of Jehoiakim and his mother. Now, why did Jehoiakim do this? Why did he walk out and surrender? What moved him to walk out the gate of Jerusalem into the arms of Nebuchadnezzar and be carried off to Babylon where he would die? Where he would die, you say? Yes, he would die in Babylon. He would be feasted at the king's table until his death. He would be treated very well in that captivity because he was of royal blood. And the Babylonians didn't want to have the murder of a blue blood on their hands. So they treated him very well. But why did he go out of the gate? What happened to his father? Terry? His father uh, uh, tried to make an alliance with Egypt. Very good. Uh, His father had been probably assassinated. And what happened to his body? was thrown out like a donkey's corpse outside the gate of Jerusalem, which suggests that there was an assassination coup, that he was actually taken off the throne by a pro-Babylonian faction. <clears throat> suggests. We can't prove it. So what does Jehoiakim do? He goes out to placate the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar. He goes out as a kind of peace offering. He walks out of the gate in order to keep Nebuchadnezzar from destroying the city in 597. It's coming in 586. It's going to come for some of the same reasons because Zedekiah, the last king, is going to do the same thing that Jehoiakim did. He's going to play footsie with Egypt too. 
Only Nebuchadnezzar is going to say the third time's a charm, you're out of here. This is over. Flat, down, burned, ashes. That's it. No more. I'm not going to put up with it. But Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim plays the card of placating Nebuchadnezzar by going out to him, taking his mother with it. He's not going to kill my mother, is he? My mother right here by me. He's not going to take the sword and kill her, right? Okay, so this is a peace offering, and it works because Nebuchadnezzar does spare the city, even though he does take captives, including the prophet Ezekiel, who will mirror Jeremiah in the last days of Judah, but he will mirror it from the exile land, not from the promised land. It's very interesting. We have a drama of a parallel mirror prophetic paradigm here. That's something worth penetrating. But nonetheless, one from the land of captivity, one from the land of destruction that is approaching. All right, so that's the reason for the tense here in verse 17. I think it's very important because Jeremiah is describing what he had seen, what had happened, what had the, the captivity that had come to the flock of the Lord in 597, including the king and the queen mother, etc. All right. Um, <clears throat> My note there about the crown down, which uh, the language that Jeremiah uses, is an indication that they were humbled to sit on the ground. The crown was taken off of their head, and so they were placed in a position of humility upon the ground. They weren't allowed to sit on their throne or sit on chairs, etc. They were absolutely humiliated. And the queen mother uh, has a position uh, in uh, the palace of Judah, and you'll find that indication with Bathsheba in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19. All right, now very quickly. In verse 19, some of your versions say the Negev, N-E-G-E-V. That's a Hebrew word for the south. Now notice the contrast with the north in the very next line, those coming from the north. So here we have a north-south uh, tandem or merismus. That is, this siege that is coming or the destruction that is coming is going to include all of Judah, north and south. The whole country is going into exile. Um, verse 22. Um, the righteous, the self-righteous always say, why me? Uh, it's a matter, it's a work, it's a manifestation of self-pity. All right, the emphasis here upon the skirts in verse 22. God is going to remove the skirts. Now, this is obviously a note of humiliation. They're going to be stripped naked. And if you look at verse 26, he's going to expand upon that image. He is going to turn upon them what they have turned upon him. What do I mean what they have turned upon him? Notice the lewdness of their prostitution. What's he mean, their prostitution? Is this just the red light district of Jerusalem in 586 B.C.? No, Ben, what is it? It's all over the hills. It's in the, in the hills? What are they doing in the hills? Uh, are they prostituting themselves in the hills? Does it have anything to do with the wine? Yes, it does. What does it have to do with the wine? Because they get drunk and then they prostitute themselves. But in what context? Art, in what context? Worship false gods. Worshiping of Baal and the gods of the high places, which was worship through sacred prostitution. He actually frequented female and male prostitutes in these groves. 
They were doing it in the temple in Jerusalem as they were worshiping Baal. And so he's going to turn upon them the nakedness and shame and lewdness of their own acts. He's going to do it by stripping them and exposing them with the judgment of destruction under Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 23, the double rhetorical question. Why is it a double rhetorical question? What's a rhetorical question? Loretta, what's a rhetorical question? It answers itself. It answers itself. Excellent. Excellent. So, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? No, it's a double rhetorical question that answers itself. Let's take away the can and supply what word? Is he, Scott, is he able? Is the Ethiopian able to change his skin? Is the leopard able to change his spots? We are dealing with a question of the ability to do good by those who are by nature evil. Notice what the rest of that verse says. Then you also are able to do good who are accustomed to do evil. Which raises the historical, theological discussion of the character of human nature from Pelagian to semi-Pelagian or Arminian to non-Pelagian or Augustinian Calvinist paradigm. All right, now I've laid it out for you simply there. The Pelagian says that man is has no evil nature. The semi-Pelagian also says man has no evil nature. And the non-Pelagian or the Augustinian and Calvinist says that man has an evil nature. <clears throat> this is talking about sinful man. This is talking about man after the fall, which means that the Pelagian believes that man is totally able to do, notice what verse 23 says, do good. <clears throat> and the semi-Pelagian says he is partially able to do good. And the non-Pelagian says he is totally unable, total inability. He's totally unable to do good. Now you might raise the question as to why <clears throat> the semi-Pelagian says that <clears throat> the uh, sinner has a partial ability to do good. He has a partial ability to do good because he is a participant in universal grace. Grace has purchased his ability to do good. That means that the cross of Christ purchased for all mankind the ability to do good if, in fact, they will cooperate with that common universal grace and perform the good that God asks of them. <clears throat> they do not have an evil nature per se. They have a mortal nature. That is, they have a nature that can die. So they do not believe, the Arminian does not believe in the guilt and corruption of original sin. He rejects that notion. All he says that comes from Adam is the mortality. The corruption comes from following the bad example or actually acting on bad uh, patterns of exemplarism. Which means that the sinner's condition under these paradigms is that in the case of the Pelagian, the sinner is well. He is healthy. Under the Arminian or semi-Pelagian paradigm, he is sick. But grace has been given to all, so he's in a state of sickness, but he's not dead. The Calvinist and the Augustinian says that the sinner's condition is one of death. You are dead in your trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2. 
so that grace is not necessary at all for the Pelagian because sinner doesn't need it. Grace is given to all in the case of the Arminian if you'll just use it, if you'll just cooperate with it, if you'll act upon it, if you'll do the good work of believing in Jesus, then the grace will actually carry through to his salvation. For the Calvinist, their grace is absolutely necessary because he's dead without it, and it is not given to all, it is given only to God's elect. <clears throat> all right, that's a, a very uh, quick overview of a historic uh, breakdown of the interpretation of this passage. You will notice what looks to be quite straightforward and crystal clear is massaged and even rejected. <clears throat> Pelagius rejects it flat out. The Arminians don't reject it flat out, but they have a little condition for it. You see, they can't believe that God would actually impute the sin of Adam to a whole human race. That they can't stand. They say that is unjust. Therefore, God has to treat them fairly. So he gives them a chance. He gives them this grace, which universally gives to them, restores the ability that they lost by Adam in the fall. And, in fact, now they are capable, they are able to do what God asks of them if they'll just cooperate with the offer or with the exhortation or with the condition or the imperative demanded. <clears throat> the problem here, you see, is we're not dealing with a being who has any plenary ability. The condition and nature of a sinner is just as Paul describes it. He is dead, deader than a doornail, and only a resurrection from the dead is going to make him alive, which is what Paul says in that passage, doesn't he? He says, you have been made alive together with Christ Jesus. The only thing that fits this passage in Jeremiah is a consistent Augustinian and Calvinistic interpretation of the passage because it alone does justice to the total inability, the deadness by nature, and the evil nature that we are born with and which must be regenerated if we are going to be reborn from above. You are left only with the special, electing, redeeming grace of Christ. You have hope in no one else nor anything else, praise God, for his irresistible grace that made you and me alive from the dead. Any questions? We've gone over our time a little bit. I apologize for that, but I did want to get through this since this verse is used over and over again in this discussion and is a classic in the history of theology uh, on this particular point of human ability and uh, divine, uh, uh, divine uh, irresistibility. Then let's pray. Father, we do not claim any sufficiency in ourselves. We know who we are by nature. We know that we were dead to every wooing invitation you gave, even when it came sweetly to us through the gospel preached to our hearts. We know that our hearts refused and were dead to it. We know that if we know ourselves. But we also know the wonderful grace of Christ. We know the work of your spirit. We know what you did for us that we could never do for ourselves. We know that you raised us from the dead. You gave us the ability which we did not have by your spirit, calling us effectually, irresistibly, 
You turned us from darkness to light. You raised us from death to eternity. You gave us the birth, the rebirth out of heaven. And in Christ Jesus, who is the very mirror, the very mirror of your word, because he is the word enfleshed and dwelling amongst us. In Christ Jesus, we enjoy that rich treasure of your grace. We bless you for the fact that Jeremiah has projected it and that in his own way he experienced it. We bless you for the life of this wonderful prophet. And we ask you, Lord, to help us benefit in our own life and walk because of what we have understood, what we have learned. Grant, O Lord, that we may be shining lights of the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ, taking no credit for anything in ourselves. For though we would do all, we would still be unprofitable servants. We bless you for the profitable servant, your son, our Savior. Amen. Chapter 14 next week, Lord willing.